We'll hear argument next to number 93-1199, Marvin Stone versus the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Mr. Morrison. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In March 1987, the respondent here issued an order to show cause to petitioner as to why he should not be deported from the United States. Approximately 10 months later, after a hearing, the immigration judge ordered petitioner deported. And petitioner then filed a, an appeal with the Board of Immigration Appeals, proceeding pro se, with a brief of approximately 13 pages. Three and a half years later, the Board of Immigration Appeals affirmed the order of deportation on July 26, 1991, in a brief uh, opinion uh, dealing with the issues presented. Less than a month later, acting pursuant to the rules of the Immigration Service, petitioner filed a motion for reconsideration or reopening. He later filed a very short brief, and the Immigration Service attorney filed a reply in the middle of October. There the matter remained until the third day of February 1993, uh, at which time the uh, Board of Immigration Appeals denied the motion for reconsideration and reopening in an order that ran a page and a little bit onto the second page, most of which was boilerplate uh, response uh, to the motion. Petitioner then filed a petition for review in the United States uh, Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit uh, on the 16th of uh, February, uh, less than two weeks after the order came down. He filed his brief shortly thereafter, and the government filed its brief in the end of April 1993, uh, a lengthy brief of some 33 pages, 14 of which dealt with the merits of the challenge. In that brief, the government said for the first time to petitioner, you are too late. You should have filed your petition for review short within the 90 days after July 1991. Oral argument was held shortly thereafter, uh, and in uh, early January, the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit issued its ruling. It concluded that the petition for review was timely with respect to the denial of the motion for reopening or reconsideration but it was not timely with respect to the original decision, even though the motions were then pending before the Immigration Service. It agreed with the government that the failure to file within the 90 days provided by the statute made the filing too late uh, when it came uh, in February 1993. And the question presented before this Court, on which the Courts of Appeals are badly divided, is, is that decision correct? The government recognizes that under the usual rule in administrative law and judicial review, that a timely filed motion for reconsideration or reopening renders the decision of the agency not final, such that not only need not a petitioner seek judicial review at that time, but the petitioner may not seek judicial review at that time. And the reason for that rule is a sound one of judicial economy. The court should not become involved in deciding cases if the agency which has the matter before it has the ability and the power and under its rules the authority to reconsider the decision at that time. I have two, two questions, Mr. Morrison. Number one, what happens if, uh, if uh, the petition for judicial review is filed first, and then uh, the, the petitioner 
decides oh, it's for a rehearing. What happens then? It is my understanding that the usual rule is that the filing of a petition for judicial review uh, take, takes the matter into court and that it does not divest the agency of the authority to reconsider, although it does not uh, stop the t- it does not stop the court from considering uh, the, the matter. Uh, and, and in that circumstance, it is up to the court to decide whether it will choose to proceed with the case or allow it not to proceed. Which, which the statute here, uh, uh, an option that the statute here eliminates. No, Your Honor, I don't. It says that they shall be consolidated in such a situation, no. No, it only says they shall be consolidated, as I read it, if there are two or more petitions for review. That is to say, it does not direct the Court of Appeals of the first case to hold it. And uh, my reading of the cases is that some courts more or less automatically hold them if they are told. In some cases, some courts automatically don't hold them, and in other cases, they do what seems to me the sensible thing to do, which is to look at the, the motion for reconsideration to see whether it really raises some new issues, for instance, in the immigration area, where often the change in circumstances of the country to which the alien would be deported would be a very important element. Somebody was, for instance, to be sent back to Bosnia, you would want to have the latest information on what the state of the world was in Bosnia before you sent the particular individual back. On the other hand, if it was simply you got it wrong and you misread your opinion or an opinion of the Court of Appeals, there would be no particular reason for the Court to stay there. My second question is whether uh, the filing of the uh, motion for reconsideration or for reopening simply tolls the period for review, or does it... Uh, uh, retroactively uh, render the decision non-final so that you have the full period at the end of the, uh, once the petition for reconsideration is disposed? I have not seen a case that deals with that question, uh, Your Honor, that, that comes up explicitly. It wouldn't matter here in, in this particular case. Mr. My Mr. own opinion... Would you clarify what you said before? I thought you said that in most, the, the normal situation is not only can you file the petition for reconsideration first, but if you do, if you do, you have no final order and you can't file a notice of appeal. Maybe I misunderstood you. Yes, that, that is correct, Your Honor. And, and the question that I believe Justice Scalia was asking me, is that because it makes it a tolling that you stop at that point? Suppose they file, it, as in this case, on day 26, they file the petition or the motion for reconsideration on day 26. The question that Justice Scalia, I believe, asked me, does, he, does the petitioner here have 90 days from, from the time of the denial of the motion for reconsideration or 90 minus 26, which I think is 64? Uh, and I don't know of any case that answers it. It is my opinion that the filing of the motion for reconsideration renders it not final. This would be analogous, for instance, to the, what happens in the uh, civil, under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, where filing of a timely motion for reconsideration or under Rule 52A or 59 renders the decision non-final and you get your full 30 days at the end of that time. What happens if the Attorney General then says, on the plane or on the ship, out you go? One of the regulations says that the filing of an application for reconsideration does not stop the immediate deportation of the person. Suppose you have filed for reconsideration. You say then you have no final judgment. You can't come to the Court of Appeals. The Attorney General says, this, I'm shipping this person out. Do you have any way to stop that since you yes, can't Your Honor. get to a Court of Appeals? You may not go to the Court of Appeals in that circumstance. Under 1105A, paren A, 10, 
the jurisdiction under habeas corpus in the district court is specifically preserved for that situation. And there are a number of cases where that arises, where the, the alien would then go to the district court, where he would have to obtain a stay of deportation, assuming that, that the uh, agency didn't give it to him. I might point out, of course, uh, two things. First is, we do not concede in this case the validity of that regulation, because we believe that that regulation depends upon the authority under 8 U.S.C. 1252C, which is the authority to deport, and it says there must be a final order of deportation, you then may have six months to deport the alien. Uh, this case doesn't present that question, so we don't accept the validity of that regulation. Uh, and since the phrases are the same in both statutes, we think they should be interpreted together. But even assuming the validity of the regulation, we would first point out that in many cases, as in this one here, Mr. Stone filed his motion for reconsideration in August of 1991. At no time did the service ever try to deport him. Indeed, it has not to this day tried to deport him, even after it prevailed in, in the Court of Appeals. Uh, and so the, it is in some respects uh, true that the regulation provides that, but it is not a process which automatically goes forward. The statute indeed gives the agency six months uh, to do it. Well, uh, if, if you go to the district court on habeas corpus, Mr. Morrison, what sort of considerations does the district court look at and decide whether to give a stay or not? I would think it would look at two things, Your Honor. First, it would look at, as in any kind of an application for stay, the equities. And it might well look at the, at the standard questions on a stay, such as the probability of success. Uh, it's so predicting probability of success in the Court of Appeals? Well, it's a little bit awkward. I would suppose it would probably have to predict it solely on the motion for reopening uh, part of it. Uh, it doesn't happen very much for, for this very sensible reason that the Immigration Service simply doesn't want to start go deporting people when it has it fully within its power. Uh, to simply decide these matters. Uh, this case is not an unusual one in which a motion for reconsideration languished for 17 months uh, before, before the Immigration Service. Uh, and the Immigration Service looks a little awkward trying to throw people out of the country before A, they decide the case, and B, they have uh, given them their statutory right to go to the Court of Appeals. Uh, well, but the right to rehearing is totally a creature of agency regulation. That is correct, Your Honor. And I would agree they that. could cut that out tomorrow. I agree with that. And if they cut it out, we wouldn't have, an, have a situation like this. The agency, I think they could certainly on, on reconsideration. On the reopening, Your Honor, it may be a little different because there are statutory requirements with regard to, 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 to the country to which the person can be sent and other kind of, of, of asylum and other kind of issues. And it might have a lot more difficulty. Uh, cutting out reopening in terms of presenting new evidence. But obviously those, neither of those cases is before us today in the agency. Even today, when Congress told them in 1990 to issue new regulations, uh, they finally got around to proposing them four years later, and those regulations continue, uh, albeit under uh, somewhat different circumstances, the right to file for reconsideration and for reopening. This is the, the part that I might be a little confused about, but I need clarification about is this. Imagine that you're the immigrant. Now, on day one, down comes an order. It says go. Now, on the government's interpretation, it's final reconsideration, final order, go. And uh, on the government's interpretation, I know what I'm supposed to do. I go and appeal immediately. That stays the whole business. I file a petition for reconsideration. When that's finally decided, I can appeal that too. And the thing will be consolidated. I can understand how that works. Now, take your interpretation. Your interpretation, I sit there, I get the order, it says, go. I'm not sure I know what I want to do. If, after all, I file a petition for reconsideration, I no longer can appeal 
the order saying go. At that time. No, right. That is correct. And if things drag on, the time will expire. Maybe they'll deport me. So I might have to give up. I have to make a choice. Either I am worried. I, I can't really stay in the country during the appeal. If I file, at least I can't be certain I can. <laughs> if I file that motion for reconsideration, that doesn't seem like a very good thing. It seems like I'll either have to give up my right to file a motion for reconsideration, or I'll have to give up my certainty that I can stay here until I get an appellate court to look at this thing. That, now, now, am I right about that? And if I'm right, why would Congress want to do that? Well, uh, I would say that, that Your Honor is correct that that is the way the government interprets the statutory scheme. Mm-hmm. I would say that Your Honor's analysis gives further force to my view that the government's view that it has the right to deport somebody while it is itself reconsidering the matter is not correct. I want to emphasize that issue was not before the, before the court today. But it's particularly uh, unreasonable for the government to take this position because the regulations on reconsideration, while they do warn you that you can't stay in the country, don't also warn you that you better go file your notice, uh, your petition for, for review right away. And so the alien first learns that, that uh, about this potential trap, the same kind of trap that this court uh, remarked about uh, two years ago in the Darby case. Uh, we have exactly that trap here. And we're also dealing with people who, by definition, uh, many of them are proceeding pro se, uh, they get no notice, many of them don't speak any English. Uh, if they have lawyers, the lawyers may not be fully familiar with these, these difficult mat- matters of administrative law that we're dealing with here. They're, they're basically experts in the immigration field. Uh, and I think also it's fair to say that many people know that the Immigration Service is not deporting people promptly, even though their regulations say they can do it. Uh, it leads to the possibility of selective enforcement, which is a whole other set of, set of problems. Why is it the most rational thing to do to say, file your notice of appeal immediately, then you can file for reconsideration, and everything is going forward. Leave it to the judgment of the Court of Appeals, whether it wants to stay the, the, the appeal pending the reconsideration at the agency level. Well, Your Honor, I, I would say two things to that. The first question, of course, is not whether if we were designing a system sitting here, we would design the system that way. The usual rule is to the contrary. That is to say, as I outlined it before and as the ICC case makes it clear, the usual rule is to the contrary, that you don't burden the courts with even having to deal with the administration. That was the ICC's position in that case. Here, the Attorney General's position Stated in a regulation is the other way. Well, it was the ICC's position because that was the way in which they could get the case thrown out of, out of court. Uh, I would say that the Immigration Service over the years in cases like Foti and, and Chang Fang Kwok took different positions on whether, which court you could go to depending on who was the winner or who was the loser in a particular uh, but situation. But now there is no doubt about the Attorney General's position. It's stated clearly. In, if yes. you just read the regulations, you'd know what you'd have to do. And you're saying that the Attorney General can't have such a regulation. That is correct. And I say that uh, first because I want to answer Your Honor's question about why the system wouldn't make sense. It would make sense for everybody except the Courts of Appeals. That is, the Courts of Appeals, the judges would have to get these motions and sit down and, and decide them regularly. In many cases, the briefs would have to be filed, and the court would have to decide whether to hold argument or hold an abeyance. They would have to decide whether to issue an opinion, which might end up being an advisory opinion. And all of those reasons are the same, whether it's the immigration case or the ICC or the NLRB. And I suggest to you that in the absence of some indication that Congress intended the result to be different, in this case, from others, uh, 
it would not — it should not be different. Or even or, — or, or, for that matter, even that the Attorney General intended the result to be different. The language of the Attorney General's regulation is, is not much different from the language of the, uh, of the Hobbs Act that we interpreted in, uh, in the ICC case. Isn't that, isn't that so? Well, there is nothing in the regulation itself that tells you when you go to court. It tells you when you, the alien can be deported. But there's nothing in the regulation, which is, of course, another problem that I have with it. Um, the, the, the government makes a great deal of the fact that this is an immigration area and that Congress was very worried in 1961 when it passed the judicial review provision at issue here to get these cases over with quickly. Well, there was one particular problem that Congress addressed was the multiple appeals. That is, the alien going to the district court, the district court deciding it on the record and going to the court of appeals. Congress said, no, we don't want two levels of appeals exclusive. That's the word in the statute. Exclusive jurisdiction is in the court of appeals. That took care of one problem. But interestingly, Congress did not say anything at all about the kind of speed or the necessity for, for moving the case ahead the way the government suggests here. There is nothing in the statute that distinguishes this case from the Hobbs Act. In fact, the Hobbs Act is the model, but ironically, the government says Congress was concerned about speed. They gave them 180 days for an alien to get to court. They cut it back to 90 days. The Hobbs Act, which deals with the ICC and many others, is only 60 days. Rather odd if you were really concerned about getting uh, to court. What about the 1990 amendment, uh, Mr. Morrison? Isn't that a, a, a significant difference between the statutory scheme here and the one involved in the, uh, in the Hobbs Act case? I must confess, Your Honor, when I looked at the 1990 amendment, I wasn't quite sure what it was actually going to do in the real world. My experience in the Court of Appeals is that if you've got two cases arising out of the same matter, as this surely would be, the Court would inevitably consolidate them. Uh, there is no legislative history that helps on this. The government... But that doesn't, doesn't, isn't it fair to say that, uh, that it displays the expectation of Congress that, that at least with enough frequency to, to be worth addressing in, in the U.S. Code, there would be two separate appeals, one from the original order and one from the, uh, uh, from the denial of the petition for reconsideration. I think that that is, as an inference, uh, the government's position first is that under our view of the statute, there would never be a case in which this would happen. That seems to me to be demonstrably false, and let me explain why. Suppose that in the stone here had uh, not filed, and, and then after, but, but it sought review in the Court of Appeals within the 90 days. Six months later, uh, he would, his country of origin is Canada, so it's not likely to happen, but let's assume that, that something happened in Canada that made it in very changed circumstances for him to go back there. He wouldn't file a motion for reconsideration. He would file a motion to reopen, setting forth an affidavit's new circumstance. For instance, it might, his family situation might have changed here. He might have a sick child in the United States. And he would be asking for some form of discretionary relief. Many aliens do that. Uh, they ask for some form of discretionary relief on reopening. If that were denied, he would then seek judicial review on the reopening under a rather net different standard from under the original case, just like in the ICC case. That is, it would be an abuse of discretion, and there are rules of the INS saying when they have to reopen and so forth and so on, what you have to put forth. In that situation, the 1990 statute would come into play, just as it almost certainly would have come into play before 1990. So, Is that situation common enough, however, to be a, a reasonable explanation for the statutory provision? I can't answer, I, I mean, I can't answer that can question, come up with, with a circumstance that... that well, I think it's quite common that, that aliens do submit new information. That is a fairly common circumstance. 
There is nothing in the legislative history to support it. There was directed to be a study by the, by the uh, Attorney General afterwards, and I think there were some less than a thousand cases in which motions for reopening were filed. I'm sorry I can't read the Congress's mind on, on that. It certainly is not an absurd notion that they should do it, and it, it, was, it was a notion that they should do something to speed up the process. But interestingly, that amendment is adding a new section, A6. It does not change either the meaning of the Ford final order of deportation or the 90 days or anything else in the language which we're relying on here. Mr. Morrison, may I go back to Justice Breyer's question to you? I'm not sure I'm thoroughly... Uh, satisfied with your answer to him. You, you, in effect, say the issue of whether a petition for reopening stays the dis- deportation is not before us. Does that mean we must assume for present purpose, for purpose of deciding this case that the government is correct? In which event, it seems to me, the problem he poses, you haven't answered, namely that a person is ordered to be deported and uh, files a petition for, for reopening and loses the right to appeal because it's rendered the order non-final and may therefore be deported at the whim of the government. Subject to the right of going to the district court on a habeas yes, corpus. Uh, but the habeas corpus. And I, and I would argue very vehemently that... that, that, that Let's first, put aside for a moment with the habeas corpus, because that's not a guarantee by any means. Well... As the appeal is a guarantee. Yes, Your Honor, but one would be hard-pressed to know what the Immigration Service would say in response to my motion, which would say, first, we have a timely motion for reconsideration, which they haven't acted on despite the many months it's been before them. They want to deport him. As soon as they act on it, he's going to file and go to court on the, uh, he's going to go to court and get an automatic stay of deportation. Where do the equities lie in that kind of situation? And, and I think under those circumstances, most district judges would be pretty hard pressed to say, send him out of the country. He loses all of his rights at that, at that point, regardless of what the merits of the decision are, are. Because the Immigration Service has it fully within its power to correct the matter as soon as it wants to, if it will only get around to deciding these motions for reopening. I'm just concerned that your position may not be the most protective of the immigrant. That's what I'm suggesting. Uh, Your Honor, I, I am uh, representing uh, my client here today, and his case is not particular going to... On this state of, you know, this particular record, I'm thinking of the hypothetical case in which a person, 60 days after the order of deportation is entered, is about to be deported and takes an appeal. He has, he has an insurance policy right now. He cannot be deported. That is Under your view, he could be deported. He could be deported if the service A chose. Cho- I don't believe under the law, as I read the statute. I understand, but you're relying on an issue you say we don't have to decide. Have to decide. That is correct. I'd be more than happy to have your honors decide it in my favor. But I'm just wondering, if in order to protect the people in this position, we do not need to decide that. And you say we don't. So you're willing to rest on the proposition, as I understand it, that he would be subject to deportation whenever he makes the... When, when he d- does something that makes the deport, uh, if, if he, let's see, I want to get myself mixed up here. If he fails to appeal, he would be subject to deportation. That is, I believe, the only intellectually defensible result, way that you can reach the result, which I'm urging this court to reach today, that my client's petition for re- consideration stopped, whether it's told or, or, or made it yeah. non-final. He's always going to get his day in court. And, and that is my obligation to, to do it. And, and I believe that, that aliens will be adequately protected. I do not believe the service will engage in wholesale orders of deportation, and the district courts would not stand for it if they did when it's perfect within their power to see the people both. Well, if, if we affirm the Sixth Circuit here, your client is on his way, right? That is correct, Your Honor. 
That is correct, unless there is some other discretionary form of relief which he may seek the Immigration Service. But as far as the court system is concerned... Would, would that stay his deportation? Forever? No, it would not. It would not, Your Honor. I mean, not unless... When was the original order to deport him uh, entered? The, the immigration... Well, the order to show cause was in March 1987. Um, that was, what, seven years ago? Yes, almost eight now. Eight. Uh, the, the immigration judge was in January 88. The Board of Immigration Appeals was three and a half years later, in July of 1991. Um, and they have made no effort to deport him in those, uh, those uh, whatever number of years you're measuring it from, uh, despite their regulations, despite what they say the statute is. And, and, and I am very concerned about this, Your Honor. I, I don't know what the, the, the right answer is. It seems to me the best answer is for the service uh, to get off the dime and, and, and to start to proceed with these, these matters so that they can be taken care of. I think that's what Congress wants. Uh, and instead of playing judicial yo-yo... Mr. Parson, uh, uh, I want to come back to the, the 1990 amendment, the consolidation provision. You have given me uh, an explanation of how that provision has meaning with regard to reopening. How does it have meaning with regard to reconsideration? Because it does say any review sought with respect to a motion to reopen or reconsider such an order shall be consolidated with you. As Your Honor may, may know, the, the, the service has no time limits whatsoever on motions for either reconsideration or reopening. And I suppose I could, if I were an attorney in good faith, say to the INS, uh, there's a new case which you've decided, which is inconsistent even after my time for review has uh, you already filed my petition for review. You treated somebody differently. That's reconsideration as opposed to reopening. Reopening is new evidence. Reconsideration is that, that you've now inconsistent with another line of cases that you've decided. I'd like to reserve uh, what little time I have left. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Morrison. Uh, Ms. Brinkman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Attorney General acted well within the authority delegated by Congress in establishing the administrative framework governing deportation proceedings. It's a reasonable interpretation and implementation of the Act, and it warrants great deference. The Attorney General struck a balance between several competing interests. On the one hand, she promulgated regulations providing that an order, a deportation order becomes final upon dismissal of an appeal by the Board of Immigrations. That rule serves the interest of finality and expedition. On the other hand, she authorized a narrow avenue of relief through motions to reopen or reconsider. Those serve the interests in fair adjudication and permitting consideration of information that arises later. The Attorney General did not provide that such motions affect the finality of deportation orders. There is nothing in Immigration and Nationality Act or the implementing regulations that requires the Attorney General to surrender the finality of deportation orders well, as a condition of permitting such motions. I, I assume just at this point you might answer, I think Justice Scalia brought up the fact that her regulation doesn't say anything about uh, whether or not reconsideration tolls uh, uh, or makes it non-final, and the regulation is written in the same words as the Hobbes Act, as the Administrative Procedures Act, and as interpreted by this Court, uh, to mean that if you file a motion for reconsideration, it isn't final any longer. So wh 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 what is it that leads you to say that's what her decision is? That, that isn't what her decision says. That isn't what the regulation says. Rather, it uses the language that this Court has interpreted as meaning what, the, uh, what Mr. Morrison said. Your Honor, we believe that the locomotive engineers um, addressed a different question. The issue in that case was whether or not the Hobbes Act and the Administrative Procedures Act required that a motion to reconsider not affect 
the finality of an agency order. And in that court, that case, the court agreed with the Interstate Commerce Commission that those statutes did not require that. And they did not prevent an agency from taking another approach, which the Interstate Commerce Commission took, in that motions to reconsider could affect the finality and suspend that finality to stay the time for seeking judicial review. But just, I think uh, Justice Breyer's point is that just as the Hobbs Act did not require it, so also the text of the Attorney General's regulations do not require it. Your Honor, we believe the language that, is virtually the same. We believe that the Attorney General's um, interpretation of that regulation is reasonable. There's nothing in the statute or the regulations that suggest that the filing of a motion undermines that finality. To the contrary, the structure of the regulations bolsters and corroborates the Attorney General's interpretation. Not only does it one, you, you infer that from the regulation that says you can deport the person immediately, that you don't have to, that it's final. The, the one thing that is in the regulations is that it's final for purposes of putting the person on the boat or the plane. Yes, Your Honor. And um, not only does that support um, the Attorney General's interpretation, there's another aspect of the regulations where the Attorney General provides that an alien does get an automatic stay during an administrative appeal from the immigration judge to the Board of Immigration Appeals, therefore evidencing that the Attorney General not providing such a stay means that after a um, dismissal of an appeal by the Board means that that order is final. We would also submit, Your Honor, that um, the regulation concerning motions to reopen and reconsider supports the Attorney General's interpretation in that it requires Section 3.8 of 8 CFR that when an alien files a motion to reopen or reconsider, the alien must specify whether that deportation order is, has been or is then pending judicial review. Clearly anticipating that judicial review may ha- should have gone forward if the alien was intending to seek that. Ms. Bringman, exactly what interpretation of what section are we talking about when you say that the Attorney General's interpretation is entitled to great deference? Your Honor, we believe that the language is um, 8 CFR 243.1, establishing that a deportation order becomes final upon dismissal. Uh, where, where, where is that in your brief? That is on the very last page of the um, appendix to the government's brief, Your Honor, on page 10A. 243.1 on page 10A. Yes, Your Honor. That establishes that an order of deportation, and uh, it's down to about the uh, sixth line, shall become final upon dismissal of an appeal by the Board of Immigration Appeals. Also, if the alien um, waives the time for seeking that administrative appeal or that time expires, it becomes final. And the plain language of the statute, 1105AA1, is that no later than 90 days after that date, the alien must seek judicial review. Ms. Brinkman, I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I guess I don't have everything in front of me, but it, it, is, not, it is not my impression that in, in, in other agencies, uh, uh, the mere fact that an order is, uh, um, is not final uh, in the sense that a petition for reconsideration may still be filed, prevents that order from being enforced. Is that the case in all other agencies? I mean, you're, you're appealing to the, uh, to the Justice Department's uh, provision that says it can be enforced at once as demonstrating that this is different from the normal Hobbs Act or the normal APA uh, situation. 
Is it the case that, uh, that in, in other agencies uh, the orders are not enforceable as long as a petition for reconsideration or, or a petition for reopening can be filed? No, Your Honor, I believe there are agency actions in which it can be enforced. But there's, there's a difference in the, the deportation context, and I think this is what is so important um, in, the, in the, um, the recognition of the deference and the delegation of the authority Congress has given to the Attorney General. And the statute directly recognizes this. There's a unique finality about deportation orders because once they are enforced, in virtually in every case, the issue is then moot. In recognition of that finality, Congress provided for an automatic stay pending judicial review, except in the case of um, aggravated felons, in fact, but in the um, situation um, which is before the court. At the same time, however, Your Honor, the Congress also recognized that there were important interests of expedition. And in the statute in 1105AA, which sets forth the exceptions to the Hobbs Act for judicial review in this context, that provides that the Attorney General can enforce a deportation order, notwithstanding the availability of judicial review, unless and until the alien, in fact, files for judicial review. That's um, paragraph 8 of 1105AA. And also, there are two other aspects of 1105AA that um, demonstrate Congress's interest in expedition and finality. In subsection C, Congress explained that after the enforcement of a deportation order and an alien departs, there is no further judicial review. So an alien can, in fact, be deported before he seeks judicial review, and there's no further judicial review after that. Again, demonstrating that Congress's intent was that the alien should file a petition for judicial review to obtain an automatic stay. I wasn't talking about Congress's intent. I was talking about the Attorney General's intent. I, I thought you made the article, the argument earlier, that the meaning of the of the Attorney General's regulation is made clear by the fact that the Attorney General allows uh, that the regulations make it clear that the order can be enforced at once, even though there may later be a motion for reconsideration. And I'm saying I'm not sure that's different from what most other agencies do, that even though a motion for reconsideration is available or a motion to reopen, the order is enforceable at once. I think the, the way in which we... Um, I'm not talking about the, the, the Congress's intent now. I'm talking about the, the Attorney General's regulations. I understand, Your Honor. I think what we rely on that is to show the reasonableness of the uh, Attorney General's interpretation and that those regulations should be read to um, view the lack of an automatic state as bolstering her finality regulation and definition. Because in the instance when it's not final, when there is an administrative appeal from the immigration judge to the board, she does give an automatic stay. So in that sense, I believe it um, bolsters the reasonableness of the finality definition. We're not interested, at the moment, I'm not interested in the reasonableness of that interpretation, but is that the interpretation? Look, you have language in the Hobbes Act which says an order when it's served is final, okay? It's final on the date when it's served, no matter whether there's a petition for reconsideration. And the Court says that language which says it's final when it's served but it isn't final if you file a petition for reconsideration. That's what this Court said, irrespective. And this Court said it because the APA says exactly the same thing. The APA says it's final, no matter whether there's a motion for reconsideration or not. And this Court says it's long been held that you file a motion for reconsideration, not final anymore. 
Now, we have for the third time a, a regulation this time which says an order shall become final. It says nothing about petitions for reconsideration. So why wouldn't, the, why wouldn't this regulation mean exactly what similar language means everywhere else in the law? Namely, that it is final, but if you file a motion for reconsideration, it doesn't become final. That's what, that, I think, is what's worrying me and maybe some others. Your Honor, um, we urge um, that locomotive engineers held that the language of the Hobbs Act and the APA does not require that motions to reconsider not affect finality, but it permits an agency to take another approach. The cases cited by the court in locomotive engineers themselves recognize that. The first case um, cited American Farm Lines okay. recognized the fact that you can also have an administrative um, ruling while uh, judicial review is pending. The, the very page cited by the um, court in locomotive engineers um, explains that the concept of an indivisible jurisdiction it, where um, all of the proceedings must be in one tribunal and um, or all in the other may fit some statutory schemes, but it doesn't fit this one. That's what the court in American Farm Line said, and that was one of the cases on which the court and locomotive engineers relied, and that's what we submit here. This is a different context. Under Weinberger versus Salfie, the court has held that where Congress does not define finality of an agency order and delegates authority to the agency, the executive official has it well within her power to define that finality. We submit that's what the Attorney General has do done here and that that deserves deference. With language that is the same as the language in the Hobbs Act. I mean, it seems to me that uh, since we had interpreted this language not to do what she wants to do, she might have used some different language. Your Honor, um, the Attorney General's language long predated the opinion in locomotive engineers and as the court itself... Maybe it should have been changed after locomotive engineers. Well, Your Honor, the Attorney General's whole regulatory framework and the other aspects of the regulations we pointed to bolster that interpretation of that plain language. The court itself acknowledged in locomotive engineers that the, the plain language of those provisions submit, um, supports the position that we're advocating today. It simply held that it did not prevent an agency from taking another approach. This is something that it seems to me the law should be pretty clear about before somebody gets, uh, you know, put out of the country without the opportunity for judicial review. Don't you think it should be clear and, and no doubt about it? Yes, Your Honor, not, we do. Not regulation language that, that, that reads just like the statutory language, which we said does not, uh, does not prohibit uh, uh, later seeking of judicial review. I, I would feel very much snookered if I were an immigrant who read this regulation, read what the Supreme Court said a similar statute held, and then I'm told I can't go to court. That doesn't seem to me the way a, you know, an honorable country should, uh, should operate. Your Honor, we believe that the reading of locomotive engineers puts um, a person on notice that the federal agency that's administering the act, um, if that agency has the authority to define finality and the impact that motions to reconsider or reopen may or may not have, that's where uh, the person should look. Yeah, but the only specific language I take it in, in your argument uh, that, that the Attorney General's regulation actually addresses to this issue is the regulation that provides that when a, uh, an appeal is taken, there should be a specification as to whether a, uh, a motion for reconsideration or reopening is, is pending. Is that correct? We believe that that's one regulation that bolsters the reading of 243.1. It doesn't require it, does it? Well, Your Honor, we think that the plain language of the statute indicates that 
a if, if we if if we assume the plain language of the statute does not in and of itself answer the question uh, and you then turn to the regulation that says when you appeal, you should say whether there's a, there's a motion to reopen, etc. pending. You would, I take it you would agree that that may be some evidence, but that is not an, that is not, uh, an, an unequivocal statement for your position. Is there, it, do, do you agree with that? It, it doesn't um, specify in so much words what the impact that a motion has no impact on Right. It would be technically, it would be consistent. It could be consistent with Mr. Morrison's position. We don't believe so, Your Honor. In uh, Mr. Morrison's position, there would not I, be. I might file the, the, the motion for reopening and say, I think I'll take an appeal anyway. Uh, and I'm going to do it because I'm afraid the time may run against me. But under Mr. Morrison's interpretation, the court is without jurisdiction. Um, to exercise review over that petition for judicial review. And that, Your Honor, is where we submit that the um, alien actually is caught in a trap. It's the, the trap that... Um, well, the trap that Justice Breyer described. It's the trap if, that... He, he, he loses his, his guarantee and his only hope is habeas in that case. Well, Your Honor, also the, the trap of um, forever losing a right to judicial review if the... Um, if, if he's wrong. If, if he doesn't later... Um, submit yet another petition. That was the trap that litigants fell into before the recent amendment of the Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 4, having, if an alien would file a petition for judicial review based on the plain language of the statute, and believe it timely, then file a motion uh, to reopen on a, uh, another matter. If that divests the court of jurisdiction over the petition, and the alien doesn't later file yet another petition, he, he'll be forever barred of judicial review. I don't think Mr. Al Mr. Morrison took the position that it divests the court. I, I, I didn't understand that to be his position. No, he does not. I believe it's his position if the motion is filed first. If the motion is filed first, that there is no jurisdiction. The courts have, um, in fact, exer continued to exercise jurisdiction over a petition for review, notwithstanding the filing of a later motion, as Mr. Morrison pointed out, but they've done with that, that without any analysis. The Ninth Circuit in Barrow, Tree, and Melendez explained that that was the practice um, without any analytic distinction between whether the motion was filed before or after the petition for judicial review, but that was the approach that the Court of Appeals took. Ms. Brinkman, uh, I guess we wouldn't have this case here if the BIA had uh, acted more promptly on the motion to reconsider or reopen. Why does it take it 18 months to decide something like that? Your Honor, I, um, I think like any administration of a um, adjudicatory system, some cases take longer, some take cases um, are quicker. There's nothing in the record to indicate a particular obstacle in this case. Um, I think and that makes it all the worse in a way. If you were to say this was a particularly difficult case or that a lot of new and uh, uh, very debatable points had been raised in the petition for rehearing or reconsideration, uh, we might think of it as an exception, but if it's just routine that these things take 18 months, not the original decision, but the petition for rehearing, I mean, I think it's amazing, frankly. I, I don't know of any court in the country that takes anywhere near that long to pass on petitions for rehearing after they've once decided something. Well, Your Honor, I um, believe that the 
priorities, perhaps, that the Board of Immigration Appeals follows, whether it's to address new cases that come up as opposed to frivolous motions to reopen or reconsider, that may very well be a priority that is taken, especially in the sense that the motions do not affect the finality of the deportation order and that judicial review of that can then be proceeding. What what is it that the Court of Appeals uh, should do under your view? Uh, if the alien seeks judicial review of the BIA order within 90 days and then files a motion to reopen or reconsider, what, what does the Court of Appeals do? Your Honor, we believe that um, it is in the discretion of the uh, Court of Appeals as to how to exercise their jurisdiction. I think a good example would be what happened in the litigation of the Boudou case, which came before this Court. In that case, the Court of Appeals had jurisdiction over the petition for judicial review. Within the um, time for seeking judicial review, yet after the petition, there was also a um, motion to reopen filed. The administrative process went ahead and resolved that. Another petition for judicial review was um, filed, and the Court of Appeals consolidated those two, as Congress now instructs well, it, it all It would seem to me that, that uh, in order to honor the uh, purpose of the statute, that Court of Appeals, uh, uh, since they can't really take a, a look at every case to decide whether they're going to act on it, would enact, would, would be uh, quite within its... Uh, uh, powers to say that we're not going to uh, hear uh, any of these petitions in, in, until the agency has acted. In which case you're right, uh, we're uh, in the same position that Mr. Morrison's argument would take us in any event. Well, Your Honor, we believe that would, if that was a judicial imposition of a um, of a requirement on the agency, that would run um, counter to the court's reasoning in cases like Darby versus Cisneros, where the uh, court recognized where the Congress and the agency have not imposed an exhaustion requirement. It's not for the federal courts to impose but, that but either. The Congress has a statute which says that the Court of Appeals shall consolidate. And if I were a judge on the Court of Appeals, I'd, I'd say we, we have uh, so many hundreds of these cases in the Ninth Circuit. We don't have the resources to look at every one case by case. We'll simply wait in order to comply with the command of the Congress that we consolidate the review. In which case, you're right where Mr. Morrison's position would put you in. We don't believe so, Your Honor. Um, the uh, courts certainly can exercise their jurisdiction on a um, case-by-case basis to decide whether or not there would be a reason to uh, stay in a particular case. So, so now, under your view, the Ninth Circuit should do this before it orders a briefing? A, a panel of the court should look at the case to decide whether briefing should continue? No, Your Honor. I would imagine in the real world a party would bring to the attention of the Court of Appeals some basis for staying the proceeding. A motion for reopening or reconsideration may have nothing to do with the issue that's before the Court of Appeals. For example, Your Honor, in um, Chata, in Cardoso-Fonseca, all of those cases involve situations where there were changes in law that might give the alien another avenue for relief. In the meantime, during the pendency of the litigation, and the alien could go back and file a motion to um, reopen or reconsider on those grounds. The court expressly recognized that did not moot the judicial proceeding um, at that time for a couple reasons. One, the threshold issue of deportability would have to be resolved in any event because those motions were based on requests for other types of discretionary relief. Also, the initial relief that um, may have been requested, for example, asylum, the court should go ahead and adjudicate that because that may be a um, method, a, a relief that is more advantageous. When does the Court of Appeals know this? At oral argument 
on, on, the, on the appeal uh, from the primary decision? Well, Your Honor... It decides then whether or not it should uh, stay its consideration? For example, in the, in the case where an alien is proceeding through the Court of Appeals on an asylum request, and perhaps a, a legislative change comes up that could entitle the alien to a, a lesser form of relief, an adjustment of status that might be to a temporary um, situation as in Cardoso-Fonseca, there's no reason for the, the, the Court of Appeals ruling will in no way be mooted or affected by that latter. My point is the Court of Appeals won't know this until it hears oral argument. So it proceeds to the oral argument stage, which seems to me to be absolutely no saving of resources, which is what Congress wanted it to do under the statute. Well, Your Honor, we believe that um, Congress's intent and finality and expedition is particularly... Inspector, wouldn't it be, would just the Court of Appeals would get an application to stay the appeal that's been filed pending the resolution? I mean, that, that's the way these things come up in Courts of Appeals, don't they? If there's a later application affecting an earlier case... We rely on the parties to apply for a stay. And then you would get the problem that Mr. Morrison brought out of the Court of Appeals has enough business already having to deal with all these extra stay applications. Your Honor, we believe that um, that same argument could be made, for example, for imposing exhaustion requirements on agencies, which the Court in Darby versus Cisneros held was not the role of the courts to impose that when the statute and the agency have not imposed that. We believe, again, in the unique situation of deportation, where newly occurring events may become relevant. The parties agree that newly occurring events in a country to which an alien um, may be deported may become relevant. So there is always a potential for a motion to reopen or reconsider to be brought in the administrative process at any time during the period of judicial review. I wanted to ask your position on, on one thing that I think Mr. Morrison conceded, and I'm not sure that he did, that is the notion that the Attorney General gave reopenings and reconsiderations and could do away with them. But now that we have this 1105A, whatever, isn't Congress assuming that there will be, that there will be such applications? So whatever you might have done before, Congress is recognizing their existence. How can you now take away the prospect of reopening or reconsideration? Your Honor, um, we agree that there is this um, recognition now in the statutory framework of the motions to reopen and reconsider, which the Attorney General has long permitted. We maintain, however, that under the Court's rationale in cases like Foti and Chang Quang Kwok, the Court has recognized that it's within the Attorney General's authority to define the scope of deportation proceedings, and we would submit the scope of motions to reopen and reconsider. And the Court has acknowledged that that may indeed impact the nature of judicial review. But under this scheme, that is in the nature of things and the authority that has been delegated to the Attorney General to structure that framework. So why we believe that the statute does recognize the existence of motions to reopen and reconsider we again believe that um, it's within the, um, well within the Attorney General's authority to structure the administrative framework to define finality and to um, uh, uh, interpret that as motions not affecting that finality. You, you are staying with the position that despite Congress's recognition that there are such things as reopenings, reopening applications, that the Attorney General can say, we're going to forget the whole business, making the statute uh, 
addressing nothing because there's nothing for it to address. Your Honor, our, our argument certainly doesn't um, rest on the authority to completely abolish those motions, although there is no express requirement of that in the statute. But we do believe, as in the, the situation where in FOTI, where the Attorney General had altered the administrative screen, uh, scheme to require that applications for suspension of deportation now be brought into deportation proceedings. That meant that the judicial review provisions for deportation proceedings now were the sole remedy, the sole avenue of a, um, judicial review for suspension. In that same way, we believe that it's well within the Attorney General's discretion to set the um, limits on motions to reopen and reconsider. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Uh, Mr. Morrison, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, you began by asking Ms. Brinkman, what is it that we are being asked to construe and what is it she's asking deference to? Obviously, the regulations the Attorney General has issued can be construed and she can, the Attorney General may be entitled to some deference as to what her regulations mean. I would agree with several members of the Court that these regulations don't say what the government now says. But even if those regulations were explicit, in the end, we are construing 1105A1, which is the provision for judicial review. Sprinkman never mentioned the magic word Chevron here today, but I know of no case in which Chevron deference has been given to an administrative agency to construe away a right to judicial review. The only case the government cites is Weinberger against Salfi. And that case involved the question of not whether but when. That is, the question was whether the government could require you to take it later rather than, than earlier. Totally different situation than what we have here. And indeed, this court in Chang Fang Kwok, in Darby, in Lamp, and in other cases has specifically rejected the views of the government as to when judicial review is available. Because the whole theory of Chevron is that you give review deference to the agency in order for it to construe the statute under which it is operating. The it here is the Court of Appeals is operating. The Court of Appeals doesn't get controlled by the government. After all, we have judicial review for the very purpose of checking government action. And it would be odd indeed for the Congress to have said, we will give the government deference in construing the jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals in a way that will adversely affect those who want to challenge government action. I thought we've done that in the past. I thought we have given, we have given deference to agencies in their determination of when their action is final. For, you, you. The only case in which that arises is Weinberger against Salfie. It was raised by the Court sua sponte. The government did not object to jurisdiction, did not object and said that they did not oppose the com case coming into court. No party and this is a pre-Chevron case, argued that the government's interpretation of finality, which is what is fake there, should not, be, uh, should not be given deference because the issue was raised by the court. Mr. Morrison, are you saying that the Hobbs Act couldn't be interpreted either way? I mean, that was a case where the agency said, if we reconsider, it makes it non-final for purposes of review. The ICC could not have said under that act, under our regime, reconsideration does not stop the finality for purposes of review. Ms. Brickman kept, uh, insist, was insistent that that act was permissive, not mandatory. I, I was, I was uh, interested to hear her statement that anyone could go read 
that decision and understand that it was permissive. I read it the other way around, that it was an interpretation of the Hobbs Act as to when judicial review was available or, or not available. In my view, it would be an incorrect interpretation of the Hobbs Act and of the statute at issue here to conclude the opposite of what I've urged. But even if one could conclude the contrary, it would not be because of the Attorney General's deference to which the Attorney General's do. But if she's right about what the statute means, that under the statute the agency can decide for itself whether it's application for reconsider will stay the finality of its order for purposes of review. If she's right about that, then we do, we should defer to the agency's implementation of the Hobbs Act, if it can be implemented either way. I do not believe that that statute can mean that. It must mean it in light of the Administrative Procedure Act, which establishes the general rule that if there is reconsideration or rehearing, then the agency's action is not final, and that the agency cannot decide to the contrary. I think you've answered the question, Mr. Thank you, Your Honor. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.